Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 26th episode, I spoke with Matiz Pilzel, a product design director at Ziltra, which is basically a creative management platform for digital advertising. I wanted to invite Matiz to this podcast because he has gone through the whole experience where he basically started in the same company as a junior designer to today having the proverbial seat at the table. So I wanted to see how this journey looked like and what does even having a seat at the table mean. So a few specific topics we touched upon and I think you might find interesting are the scalable design. So what it basically is and why is it important for feasibility and viability of the company. We talked about having a seated table. What does it mean and how do you get one? And also, how does a design process look like at Teltra? Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website, beyondusers.com, and there you can take a five-day email course, which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Matiz. Cool. Uh, Matiz, first of all, thanks a lot for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you here. So first of all, let's kick off with how did you even get into design? You know, how did you get familiar with this world and how did you, what was your first role and how did you get into the community? Huh, yeah. Um, how did I get started with, desi- with design? I, I kind of was thinking about this uh, over the week and um, I don't know. I, I kind of uh, was always interested in computers. Uh, my first um, kind of run in with computers was I think I was eight years old or something like that in a school, you know, uh, in Slovenia. Yeah, and I kind of fell in love, and obviously it started with games. But then, you know, as I went or grew older, I kind of wanted to do something, you know. And uh, I went to a programming high school, but I didn't really like it, so I needed to do something else. So I started to, I don't know, learn Photoshop, you know, and 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 three three D programs and. But I didn't like uh, modeling, but I liked doing the renders, right? I I, I liked playing with uh, the outcomes. So I kind of eased myself into it, I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So you went from a developer to designer, basically. I would never... I would never call myself a developer, really. (laughs) I'm more... uh, I know what... uh, uh, how uh, it works. I know how a computer works, but uh, I've never really written any, you know, proper code. You know, the the the, the most code I've written that I kind of I can tell you about is uh, uh, when we were taught about uh, C sharp uh, libraries. I got really mm-hmm. cross with you know with all the the uh, libraries I had to include because I always forgot one. And uh, I thought I was very smart by just uh, opening them up, you know, in a text editor, copying everything out of them and pasting it into a library that I called all.h. And <laughs> when, I, when I included that, the very small program that I wrote uh, broke. So, uh, so I've learned why they are separated, you know. <laughs> Still, I mean, that's more code than, than most people write in their lives. So, <laughs> I guess, yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is that uh, I had a similar uh, conversation also in the 23rd episode with Tulio. He mm-hmm. also started more as a developer and then went into design. And I almost feel like there is some pattern here. Like, uh, And I'm just asking myself, do you feel like um, it is a big advantage if you have some um developer background or just understanding of how the code is written as a designer hmm. i would say yes because it uh, teaches you more of uh, uh, a different 
approach to problem solving. So if, if you are a developer, or you don't even have to be a developer, it's just this uh, systematic approach to problem solving that you know, a uh, more technical uh, person uses usually. Okay, what about the handover between a designer and uh, the more tech person? Oh yeah, okay. So in, in that case, I kind of I kind of feel that this is your duty as a, you know, if you if you're a if you're a product designer or if you worked uh, as a web designer in the, you know, past, uh, I think that your one of your requirements as a designer is to know code and how it's not necessarily write code, but to know code, know the limitations, obviously, right? So you don't produce designs that are not, you know, really hard to produce on the engineering end. I think we're slowly also starting to get into the kind of the big topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which is designing for scalability, right? Uh, yes. Can we maybe yeah. first, let's first design, or sorry, not design, but define <laughs> what scalable design and designing for scalability even means. So this is actually a nice, uh, you know, uh, segue rollover segue. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, if you if you know, um, you know what you're building uh, or how it's built, you will kind of go, uh, you'll go around the the hurdles, or you will help your fellow uh, teammate to you know be more efficient. So with that. I can tell you what uh, non-scalable design usually looks like, because uh, uh, I think if you if you kind of start, oh, you know, scalable design looks like this and that, and then people are like, but we're doing that, right? Um, but if you if we start with uh, what it's not, uh, I think it's a better kind of wake up call usually. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So, usually it starts with the actual design files. So be it Sketch, be it Figma, whatever you use, even Photoshop, right? Uh, I've seen this all over the place. So there's no naming system. So people use, you know, you know, you know the uh, old joke, final one, final two, final 55, <laughs> final, really final version one, and, and so on, right? It's a, it's a running joke. And it's basically, it's a lack of uh, discipline, right? And then the, the, it, it, uh, spills into the file itself so you have a file and then within the file it's just you know uh <laughs> it's a free-for-all right there's layers everywhere there's nothing is named everything is like just like thrown in and you know that's it right uh in the engineering world this is called spaghetti code right it, the person that comes after you can't use it so this is where it starts. But then b what that causes is things start to be copied by eye, right? You, you kind of look at the existing design and then you're like, oh, okay, I need this. And then people start just copying it by eye, right? Oh, I need this dropdown. And they just draw it and, and then apply the dirty file and the no naming system to it. And you have a, you know, you just perpetuate the, 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 the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, what what that uh, results in is that you 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 will then forget a state of the dropdown. For instance, I'm just using a dropdown as a as an example, right? Uh, you will forget an error state for the dropdown. You'll you'll make a small mistake when you when you pick the color, stuff like that, right? If if we if if we remember the the clear type uh, anti-aliasing, right? This was like a actual problem that we had was. Uh, our engineers were color picking the uh, text color on the screen, right, or off the the, the screenshot. And what ClearType does is it makes a, a left and right ghost of the of the text, and then colors one blue and one orange. And then if you pick right, you will pick the wrong color if you're not directly on the pixel. So we had like ten different hex codes for the same color. In, 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 in CSS, right? So obviously this is not scalable, right? And I'm not even talking about uh, uh, about the 
collaboration between the teams, which makes it really hard, right? If you have files and, and a system like that, and um, you know, it's it, it's just all over the place, and uh, you end up with five different designs in the same product or design design you know styles. So if I understand correctly, one of the problems of not following the scalable design is that um, also the speed can then be slower, right? Because you're not reusing the same assets, you're just reinventing the same wheel, then you're slower. But then yeah. the second problem is also then that you're not coherent. Basically, you're using different elements for what should be the same element or the same asset. Yes, yes. The, the, the usual suffers, right? You you have less uh, uh, efficiency, obviously, because you have to rebuild stuff. Uh, you Consistency isn't there at all, right? Maybe you try to do it, but it's really hard because you're basically restarting every every project. And, you know, when, when it comes to development, it's also slow because you don't have existing objects to reuse, right? You can't... Basically, there's no reuse of elements because they don't exist, right? And then people start building their own kind of, and then one developer has his own, the other has his own, or, or teams, you know, like, uh, it's not a nice site. So how do you approach creating a scalable design? So usually uh, what it takes is a design system, but design system come, come in different shapes and sizes, right? Uh, so what I, what I would like to kind of do is like a, very high level uh, dive into it, not very uh, into the weeds, but just a high level dive. So we, uh, we can kind of see what it, what it solves, right? Or mm -hmm. what is the, what is the, uh, why do you need it, right? What, what does it solve? Um, so in short, um, the design system helps with transparency, collaboration, and efficiency, right? Transparency means that anyone can contribute to the system, right? So a junior designer figures out that, let's say, you need a combo drop-down, whatever, you know, the little checkbox thing. And yeah. it's not present in your, in your design system. So the non-transparent uh, situation would be, no, 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 we don't use that, right? We figure out something else, right? But the transparent use or the more open use would be, aha, okay, so what are we tr trying to solve there? And try to incorporate it, if it has any meaning, obviously, right? Try to incorporate it with the whole team. So everyone's briefed at the same time and they know, aha, okay, so this is another piece to the system. Um, collaboration, right? Uh, you know, when we talked about uh, how developers kind of, I mean, we talked about, I just mentioned it before, right? So <laughs> um, it just means that you support each other, be it designers, be it, you know, product managers, be it uh, engineers, but you build a system that can support anyone with their work, right? So well, one team would uh, use it for making quick prototypes, right? The other team would use it to build an actual product like in, in development, right? and so on and so forth but the result of all of these things is that you are more efficient you're basically mm -hmm. building a tool for yourself for your design organization to be more mm -hmm. efficient so i mean the big question for me is like when does it make sense to start creating the design system to start thinking about the scalable design that's a that's a that's a good question yeah so obviously you <laughs> There's no, you know, cutoff line. That's you know, you should be three designers and that kind of a product, and you need a design system, right? <laughs> yeah. But I would say that, you know, in the discipline, is needed from the start. Obviously, right? You, but discipline isn't a design system. It's just clean files and you know a clear uh, system to naming, so people can reuse files if if there's no system because a design system would be that the code and the design are basically the same thing so you could start with that you could have like a you know um, basic sy system in place which is uh, design files and like a 
naming system for those files so everyone can find their way around the, the, the design uh, uh, files. Hmm. But then when you grow and when your product becomes more and more complex, um, let's say you start with an app. An app usually is, you know, sometimes it needs a design system, sometimes it doesn't. It depends how complex it is. But let's say um, something that has two states doesn't need a design system, obviously, right? Because it's a one Photoshop file or one sketch file. But something that has multiple products will need a design system. So I would say you could do without a design system with a simple product, yes, but when it becomes more um, complex and starts having different pillars in it, right, when different teams start working on it. Actually, that would be a great uh, cutoff point, actually, yeah. When, when you start having different teams on the same on the same product, you will start needing a design system as a means of communication and collaboration. Hmm. I'm just wondering whether there's also a point at which you need like somebody like a designer who only takes care of the the, the design system part. Is that yeah, even a thing? Yeah, or? Yeah, exactly, uh -huh. it is. It is. We we have that person. Uh, and it's usually accompanied by a developer too. So because uh -huh. uh, I mentioned that it's basically the same thing, right? The design and the code need to be the same thing, the same system. Because you can't have a design system and then it gets implemented differently every time, right? <laughs> so that won't work. So what we do is we have uh, one person that does the design and kind of makes everyone, you know, contribute and then they work together with the engineering uh, or with the engineer sorry uh, to create little pieces of that design we call them uh, what do we call them symbols i guess or little components that are then being used when you create a prototype or when you're creating designs right the ultimate in this obviously is that you have a single source of truth i think I think Airbnb is trying to do that. I'm not sure. But basically, imagine it that your design is saved in a form of code. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't have files. I mean, you don't have design files with, uh, with um, I guess you do, but it's the same thing, right? The code and the design. Mm. But design is still work in Sketch and Photoshop and stuff. Well, with, with Sketch, it's harder. Uh, but with tools like Figma, it's a bit easier. So, okay, got it. So that's why I think Uber is switching or switched to Figma, right? So if if I just go a bit deep, <laughs> just for a, <laughs> just for a second, right? Sure, that, sure. That, that would mean that I do the design, for instance, or not me. Let's say uh, someone else does the design, and then it gets implemented into our uh, repository, if you will, into our design system, and then the the uh, what are they called? The little symbols that I pull from the design systems are not files, the, uh, sketch files. They are code. And then that code gets translated into design pieces. Okay? okay makes sense. So, yeah. so basically, when we change one thing, it behaves like code, like a, you know, like a, a sweeping change. So when yeah. you change a color, it's changed everywhere. You don't have to change 10 files. Got it. I'm just curious, like at what point... Um, and what size did you need at Celtra? Did you need like a um, designer and a coder uh, to take care just of the the design system? Mm -hmm. I, I would I would defer back to the to the uh, complexity of the product, right? So at a certain point, we realized we have we have uh, a problem. <laughs> so uh, we realized that we have about three or four different designs. Um, you know, in our product. So that wasn't ideal. But updating it, you always run into the old uh, adage, which is, we can't do that. It's too, you know, ingrained into the monolith structure, whatever, right? So you, you wanted to change the color and you couldn't because there's like 20 CSS files that needed changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So obviously that's not ideal, right? So... 
we started experiments with uh, a library, I think about but two or three years ago even, right? But implementing that into the workflow and implementing that into our uh, structure or design organization took a while, but not because of, uh, I think it's a mixture of discipline and the tools that are available today kind of, they became a bit more, uh, oh, I forgot the word. Friendly for that? <laughs> not, or? Not, not friendly, but uh, uh, they, they matured. Okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So if you think about uh, when we started doing this, uh, we were still, or some of us were still on, on, on working on Photoshop or with Photoshop, right? Then uh, Sketch came along and we, we adopted that and it was much better. Because at the time, you know, Photoshop was kind of mech with artboards. And you basically had to do states in Photoshop, which was a nightmare. So then came along Sketch. We were very happy with it, but it was still, it also had the, you know, the cornerstone of modular design, which is a symbol. <laughs> so uh, with that, we were able to scale our, I guess uh, our production a bit better, uh, but now with tools like uh, you know Figma and all the updates to that Sketch did, it's even easier. Interesting. Like, I almost feel there is a correlation between the state in the industry, in the design industry, and the community, mm -hmm. and with the tools that we are having. Oh yeah, I definitely think that this uh, let's call it uh, procedural procedural design. Um, I think John Maida called it something else, but basically it's like this. You're creating rules, a rule set, basically, um, instead of, you know, screens or throwing, you know, different uh, layers on and kind of arranging them. You, it's, it's much more closer to what code is than, you know, what design used to be. I mean, not really. My, my, <laughs> my... My uh, thoughts are still that real good design is still, or, or, or always was, rulemaking. Not just, you know, oh, we need, a, we need this here and this, that. That's just styling. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what do you mean by rulemaking, that being a good design? Okay, so if you, if you uh, let's think of a, I mean, this is very much, uh, I guess, a product design thing. But product design is getting bigger and bigger. Oh, there's like... A huge it's a huge thing now so when you design a product you don't want uh, you're basically designing little modules right you don't want each uh, screen to be a separate affair right you want uh, this kind of ties into the whole scalability thing right so yeah. I don't want each screen to use different modules so think about it in a, in a way of, uh, oh, so on this screen, I have a dropdown or a search dropdown or whatever, right? But on the other screen that also has search, it's a different affair, right? Why? You know, right? So when, you are, when you're not doing it screen by screen, you should be thinking about each little module and how it will translate onto each you know, uh, state basically. So if I talk about the search widget or whatever, right, I designed the search widget so it will work in both cases. So it will cover both cases and I design it in a sense that, you know, it resizes properly and that's my job, right? I, I, I set up all the rules so it should resize in this manner. Uh, uh, when it's in this state, it, this transition is so and so, right? Um, like, do do you know what I mean, or does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. So we are more designing the the principle behind the solution, and then you can reuse that thing. Exactly. In other yeah. You're you have to think a lot about uh, how it will be used and how it will adapt itself. So basically, you're designing rules. Uh, for for the for the design mm. let's also talk about your design process right uh -huh. um, yes. how do you go from having a goal probably a business goal 
to designing solutions? So my answer will be a bit more uh, uh, product management colored, uh, but I think it's a nice uh, mix of uh, you know business and design because it's ultimately it's intertwined. Yeah, perfect. So, uh, let's start. So how do we start basically, right? Because starting is also very important. So usually you will get a set of goals that the business has or wants to um, achieve. And then from those goals, we start uh, with a problem definition, usually around the persona, right? So we define the problem. What, what is it, right? What, what are we trying to solve and for who? Then, I mean, you could call this a discovery phase, if you will, right? So then we come up with a one or not, not one, two or more hypotheses, uh, which are different solutions for the same problem. Ideally, different solutions come from different teams that are solving this one problem, business problem. Then what we do is uh, we start, you know, sketching it out. We start building it out to kind of see if uh, it makes sense. And we start a quick round of validation experiments. And what what to validate is, you know, does it have business value? Yes, no. So that's usually with, uh, with uh, your sales team, you can do that, right? Then you check, does it, the, 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 does it have value for customers, right? Uh, that's usually product market fit, right? If, if they see value in your product, perfect, right? But how much, right? Or it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a uh, tricky process because sometimes people say what you want to hear, right? Yeah. Then you have uh, I mean we kind of all do this and we also touched on this when we were talking about designers and engineers, right? Then there's the feasibility, uh, the feasibility um, experiment, right? You, you basically go to your team and you go through what you would like to build. And see if it's possible, right? Does the technology cover that? Can we can we already do that? Can we not? Is it too expensive to build? Is it too expensive to maintain? And so on, right? And then at the end, I mean, not at the end, but also uh, we need a usability uh, experiment or validation, right? Because it's actually it's connected, right? If you don't have usability, you don't have business value, right? and vice versa. If you don't have business value, you can't do usability because no one's going to buy it. Mm. Right? Let me try to recap this to see if, if I got it correctly. So there is a set of business goals or one business goal. From that goal, you try to basically create hypothesis about the problem. And then for each problem, hypothesis for a solution. And yes. then for that solution hypothesis, you basically run some experiments. And if I understand correctly, you first run an experiment for viability with a sales team, then you test it with customers for desirability, and then with the tech team for feasibility. And then lastly, as a last point, then you test the usability. So the validation or the experiments aren't really, uh, you know, it depends on the project. Yeah. So I will say it depends greatly on the project, right? So if you start with a project that's dealing with AI, for instance, right? you will obviously first go test feasibility. Yeah. <laughs> you don't sell it and then, I mean, you don't go test it with clients because they're going to go nuts, right? Uh, oh, AI, AI, right? Perfect. And then see, you can't do it. So I would, I would uh, for that, I would go with feasibility first. Um, and, and same for everything else, right? Maybe you have a great product, but it's not really sellable. So business might be a bit, you know, might be a good thing to start with. That's a great point, right? So you need to identify where the biggest risk is. Exactly. Which and then start with that. Yeah. Exactly. But does it sometimes happen that you can test a few things together? Like, can you take test desirability? And... Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, for instance, if you if you make a, uh, let's call it a high-fidelity uh, prototype, which we usually use to kind of test with clients because you, you, know, you don't want... I mean, you could do paper and pencil, but... Uh, it needs to be very, very uh, nicely uh, put out to the customer because if they think this is your solution, it might be a problem, right? But uh, anyway, mm -hmm. so 
you do a high uh, high um, fidelity prototype and you go and you kind of test the value, right? If they see value, then the question of if you can sell it is not such a big problem, right? Okay, they see value, so now how are we going to sell it is a much less a, a much uh, lesser problem than 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 before. It might be tricky in the sense of oh we I mean there is value but we don't have the business structure to support this. So if you think about, um, let's say, okay, so the recent SaaS revolution, right? So not so recent, but still. Um, before, you were selling software, you know, one by one, like license-based, right? But now you're selling it uh, as a subscription. So if the client gets kind of very excited about the licensing part, right? Because they kind of assumed it's going to, is going to be there or stay, but you want to sell it as a subscription, that might be something you want to test along with the value, right? But if it's mm. not, it's fair to say it's fine. Um, so I'm just curious, like you talked about also, in this case, almost changing like a business model for the product, right? Mm. So who is usually involved in this team who is creating these experiments and coming up with uh, the hypothesis and then testing them. So in Celtra, like who is part of this team? Like how does a one design team or a product team look like? So usually it's a, it, there's a product lead or a product manager that will uh, lead the product. Or, and part of that team is, a, is an engineering lead and a design lead, but that's also based on the, on the product, right? If it's an API product, you don't need a designer. But if it is, you will need one. And then we would all um, sit together, you know, and do and do some some thinking. So this is the whole ideation or the the discovery phase. Usually, it's on the product manager to come up with, you know, some to prepare everyone, right? So to do the research, to do to do the market stuff. To kind of come up with the materials, but then um, it's on the team to come up with solutions. And how do you divide work in Tiltra? Like, um, you know, who does like how around what do you bundle teams? Um, usually, it's project based. So you, but projects can be fairly big. So it could be initiative based, if you will. So this is a bit of a fluid situation with us. So you could be assigned to an initiative or you could be on a project or a product even. Um, my favorite would be uh, that we are uh, focused around a business problem, which is handed down you know, from the um, leadership. Uh, so if we, are, if we are all working towards solving a business problem, it makes the most sense and it makes the, for the most innovation like uh, the the environment is set for the mo for most innovation, so that would be my uh, best case scenario. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Tell us a little bit more also about your journey at uh, Celtra. Like you joined the company in the very early stage, and now you have this proverbial seat at the table, <laughs> something that a lot of people in the community talk about lately, and. I think it would be interesting to hear from your perspective, what does a seat at the table even mean? Uh, it means you're scared shitless all the time. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a dream come true, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, how, I, uh, how I started at Celtra was as a uh, designer, but on the advertising end. So at the time, we had a creative services team, which basically... Um, supplied, uh, it was an agency for our clients, basically. So, and we made ads and we had all the workings of an agency. And, um, you know, I, I don't know why, but I like to hang out with engineers a lot. So, you know, when I found a bug or when I found something annoying, I would tell them. And this kind of became a tradition and I think they liked it. And also our product team liked it. I didn't even know there was a product or product team at the time. I didn't know what, what it meant. Um, 
so you know gradually i uh kind of elbowed my way into the product design team <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so i yeah i mean i go i get annoyed with stuff that's not efficient so you know at a certain point they said well then you fix it right and i was like well fine then i'll fix it so here we are right um so i started working as a product designer i just called myself a designer um, i don't know um, i still thought it's the same thing uh, obviously there's a distinction but uh, i my dream was to work on authoring tools you know i i always loved the uh, adobe and uh, photoshop and stuff like that you know after effects and when i saw uh, builder which we which we call our tool or one of our tools uh, i just wanted to I wanted to work on it. And when I got this uh, um, opportunity, I obviously jumped on it, right? So fast forward uh, some years, <laughs> uh, I was a uh, product designer. I was working on the tool. I was making the tool itself, We, uh, but I wanted more control. So at the time, again, I didn't know what the product manager is or whatever, right? So I just uh, started uh, designing different solutions for the problems that we uh, that we identified, and you know it's basically what I described before, right? Different approaches to the same problem, but I did it in a form of uh, prototypes, so high fidelity prototypes, if you will, and then you know. Um, all of a sudden, I was a product manager. For the first half year, I didn't even know I was a product manager. Uh, it was a bit of a low-key low key, uh, transition. But it came with a lot of, uh, you know, you, you have to start writing specs. You're kind of, uh, um, it's on you to, to, to move the team forward, you know, you're kind of, you're the little uh, leader there, right? You need to make sure everything is taken care of. So that was scary, right? And then from there, I just followed kind of this uh, approach of what can I do to make everyone's life easier and make this thing, you know, ship basically. And, uh, you know, year by year, years passed and I'm, I'm a product director. Mm. Yeah. What are the you know, like if you are product direct, like what are the type of decisions that you are making? You know, what are the type of things that you can influence? Well, now what what we're doing now, or what the, I'm doing now, is like I'm responsible for a whole um, whole how would you call it a pillar of a product, right? So basically, my current job is how do I make um, how do I make production super efficient? And how do I, you know, free up time for our users that are producing ads, if I'm very you know, uh, specific. But in general, like if, if we make it more general, um, that would mean that the decisions you need to do or make, yeah, are on a much higher level I kind of I don't design as much anymore. Um, that's a bit of a you know it comes I guess with the with the job. Yeah. Uh, do you miss that? Uh, yeah, I do. I do miss it. But then again, you know, you you are thinking far more strategically and far more uh, horizontally. So how will my product or my solution plug into other solutions? Mm. Right? How does they? How does the whole flow come together? Okay, are we using, you know, are we reusing our uh, uh, modules enough? Uh, are we are we building the same solutions on on other products that we shouldn't, uh, you know, that could be solved with the, the the ones that we are building somewhere else, and you know, stuff like that. So you're basically the uh, the architect of the of one of the solutions that we're building, and that comes with you know market knowledge. Uh, like everything, basically. So I think what's coming through this conversation is that you have 
a pretty good overview of all three pillars. Kind of you understand the design, you understand the, the tech, and you also understand the business. You, I mean, business is a very big piece of what you need to understand at, at this level, at least, because if you don't, you don't know how and who you're selling to. Exactly. So how did you how did you learn about that? Was it like on the job or did you it was on the job? Yeah. But yeah, also, I mean, I'm going to say it again, the the Marty's book. So uh, I guess it's uh, inspired, I think, is a really good book. I think every uh, designer or product managers should read it. It's very, very to the point. So what's the book? The book is called Inspired by Marty Inspired. Kagan. You know, SVG. Uh, Silicon Valley, um, what is it? Group, <laughs> SVPG. Sorry, Silicon Valley Product Group. And what did you like about this book? What, what's so great about it? Huh. That's a that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it goes and it explains product managers far better than I could ever dream of. It's um, it goes through the process. It goes through the requirements even. It goes through the um, through the mindset, and I think it translates great. It, it translates very nicely into product design or design even, because I still think that designers are basically they should be mini architects, right? They sh- they shouldn't be stylists. Stylists are you know I don't know <laughs> hairdressers. You know what I mean? Like. It, you shouldn't be making it pretty. You should be thinking about the system. One other thing I wanted to ask you is that when you're at this level, how do you, in a sense, defend design? You know, like a lot of designers have a feeling that business people just care about revenue, uh, costs, mm-hmm. profit. And yeah, designers just mostly think about customers and how to make the more value for them and how to make their life easier. So mm-hmm. when you're in that boardroom, how do you try to balance these two perspectives? So first I would say that designers need to know their worth, right? If someone um, is focusing on numbers a bit too much, uh, that is a problem, but it's all, it also comes from a, you know, from a different perspective. So it's kind of like, them focusing on the user too much. So I would say that, uh, especially with enterprise software, uh, you will usually have more than one user. And one of those two is a so-called captive user. And this means they don't have much or any say when, uh, when the software gets bought, right? Or how it gets bought or which software gets bought. They, they may have... It depends greatly on the company they're at, but we call them the captive users. Um, like if your company gets uh, Creative Cloud or if it gets, you know, I don't know, Corel, right? You don't, you don't have much say in that yeah. um, if they sign a contract. So with enterprise software, it's kind of this spiel, right? It's a bit, it's a bit shitty, but still. You as the designer and the product manager need to know that and acknowledge this. So what we do, how we, do, how we balance this, because with our software, it's the same deal, right? Uh, a user that is not the end user buys the software. So the, the other thing is also, it's not cheap, right? Enterprise software is expensive, like super expensive. It's not 90 bucks a month, right? It's $100,000 a month. So obviously, companies will want extra validation before, before they pull the trigger. So why am I saying this? I'm kind of unpacking this whole question of yours, right? Mm-hmm. So this means that depending on the company, you can see involvement from legal, you can see involvement from procurement, from finance, from IT, other executives, right? Who will be looking for value in your product. It's not just your end user. So if you think about that, even as a designer, you're like, oh, shit, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot more variables than just the end user and the usability. But on the other side of things, you also have the actual operator of the software. 
So designers usually have this one covered, right? Where the, I, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I have to confess, I was the same, right? I was the, but the user guy, right? Mm-hmm. So, so because we like to advocate for the user, we're like, if, I mean, if you're a more empathetic kind of person, you're even worse <laughs> because you're like, you know, <laughs> you, you tend to take it to uh, another level. So, but what we didn't realize is that, especially for B2B, and more specifically enterprise software, that there are you know, more than one user to advocate for. So if I pull it back, right, this is the usability piece, whereas the, you know, above uh, or before, what I was speaking before is the business piece that you need to understand, right? It's a great point, right? You have multiple users or customers in that one single product. Yes. And the bigger the product, the more that, that happens. So does that mean that uh, design team or research team at Tiltra uh, does research with all of these stakeholders in a sense? I mean, ideally, yes. Ideally, uh, but you know, in the real world, sometimes that gets gets complicated. But we try to, yes, to involve the engineer and the designer with the product manager when they do all these decisions got it cool i also want to be mindful every time matiz so just as a last question um do you have any (laughs) we discussed it earlier do you have any unpopular opinions uh in the design community anything that you view as being a popular opinion but actually you might think it's wrong Oh yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, huh, how do I kind of? I need to package this a bit, uh, a bit uh, more uh, acceptably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think currently in design there is a uh, almost like design. Um, has an identity crisis at this moment, right? So there's all these echo chambers, which are, you know, okay, we have uh, inclusive design, we have uh, designing with empathy, we have, uh, I don't know, some people are discovering that um, if you're a designer, you need to be ethical. Wow, right? Um, Or there's designers or people that are suddenly realizing that being a exclusively data-driven is not the best thing to do. So (laughs) this to me is like, okay, so uh, if we unpack this, you have the inclusive design fallacy, I guess, right? Because this thing is focusing on the symptoms. It's not focusing on the outcomes. So the outcome should be a design. Okay. This is, I guess I haven't, packaged it neatly uh, as everything else but uh, i would say that when you are designing something or when you're building something you should be thinking of all of those things by default this is nothing new right this is this is old school design right there you know design should be uh, ecological design should be ethical design should be um, you know as little design as possible you know who i'm talking about yeah 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 like this is nothing new like why are we why are we uh, rediscovering this with such such pomp and labeling it as, as, as new? This is nothing new. This is expected from designers. Yeah, I guess it's just the problem that, like you said, it's such a new field that everything that's discovered, everything new kind of uh, excites people so much that they take it to the extreme. And then yeah, we and have... that's damaging. Exactly. Like that right. becomes damaging, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, you, basically the balance that... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the basic principles of design will always stand true. They're, they're very, very uh, you know, very open, very modular, if, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have different principles for product design because that's just bullshit. Uh, you know, I, th- I I still think that context is everything in design. This is like w- the one rule you should be following is, you know, c- 
context is everything, even even in product management. When you when you're setting up stuff, you need need to think about the context. Cool. Well, Matiz, thanks a lot for sharing you also the unpopular opinion with us. Uh, just as a last last question, where can listeners find or maybe reach out to you if they have any questions? Oh, uh, I guess Twitter. Twitter would be okay. I don't know my handle. Let me let me check my handle. Um, <laughs> real quick, I think it's just. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's super easy. Let me let me. While you're looking for that, uh, I'm also going to include the link to your Twitter handle on the website beyondusers.com/podcast, oh, so you can also find it there. Yeah. Um, did I buy you enough time? Did you find it now? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's basically Matit Spilzel, so at Matit Spilzel, so name surname. It might be a bit tough for. Um, yes yeah yes. with the pronunciation so uh, you can find it online it's there and even yeah, yeah, yeah. in the show notes wait i i know how to spell it because i've been here so long so m-a-t-i-c-p-e-l-c-l perfect <laughs> cool well thanks a lot this take for taking the time sharing all this stuff with us um, thank you for having me really yeah it was a pleasure i've been honored i am honored <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So that's all in this episode. If you have any feedback for me or for Matitz, just find us on um, probably the best space for Matitz is on Twitter and for me is on LinkedIn. So if you have any feedback, any thoughts, just reach out. And again, if you do want to learn more about business, you can visit the beyondusers.com and take a five-day email course. And uh, in these emails, you can basically learn about five Uh, business concepts are relevant for designers. Thanks for your attention and see you next time.